Did you know that the tomatoes that usually end up in our grocery store, that they're picked green and kind of tough? That way they won't bruise during shipping. And then by the time they're stacked so beautifully in our produce aisles, well, they've been gassed with CO2 or ethylene to kind of manage their ripeness. And these gassed tomatoes, they look beautiful and they're completely edible, but they cannot compare to the flavor, to the taste of vine ripened tomatoes, tomatoes that have been allowed to mature slowly on the vine. See, when you ripen tomatoes quickly or artificially, yeah, they look beautiful on the outside, but they end up kind of tasteless. Isn't it interesting that our God, he allows his people, when he makes a people for himself, he allows them to mature slowly. He's going to allow his people to ripen through 400 years in Egypt, some of which are really brutal years. He's going to allow them to undergo all kinds of suffering. He's going to allow them to experience doubt and desperation and disobedience. Because when you've been through something, when you've experienced hard times like that, when you've matured slowly, well, a relationship is forged and that's what's going to happen. And out of these hard times, out of these difficult times, well, you also have a burden. And as we'll see, hope begins with a burden. I want you to see it in Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 through 22 as we continue our theme for this year, hope for the 757. Let's go ahead and dive into it. Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Over the course of 400 years, the Hebrews had grown in number and in wealth in Egypt. But unlike previous pharaohs, there arose this pharaoh, this king of Egypt, who he, he did not know 
Joseph. Now that Hebrew word know is the word yada. It, it means he did not have like this intimate knowledge of Joseph. He did not have this association with Joseph. It's not that he never heard of him, but it's more like you hear of him and you think Joseph is some kind of fairy tale, some kind of Hebrew folk hero. I mean, the stories, they've been exaggerated and how could this possibly be true? There's no way that one man could have done the things that they say Joseph has done. And so there's no connection to Joseph because at that time, I mean, 400 years had passed. Nobody knew Joseph. Nobody had worked with Joseph. Nobody really knew the character of Joseph. Everything was kind of blown up. And so the Pharaoh, he didn't have any kind of loyalty to Joseph, any kind of connection to Joseph. And by this time, the Hebrew people had grown to about 3 million people strong. I mean, this is a big army. And so the one thing Pharaoh does know was that if these people ever turned against him, it would be really bad for Egypt. And so he gets his leaders together and he tells them, look, they're just too strong. If they ever turned against us, if they sided with one of our enemies, I mean, they could take us out. This is dangerous. We've got to do something. And so this fear that festered in Pharaoh, it resulted in brutal treatment, really a three-pronged plan attack against the, against the Hebrews. It went from one one step to the next step to the next step. It was really this extermination agenda to handle this growing Hebrew nation. And the first part of this plan, it was really to discourage the Hebrews. He assigned taskmasters to, to work the Hebrews hard and ruthlessly, just to whip them into submission while they were making bricks and building cities for Pharaoh. The cities were the cities of Pithom and, and Ramses, and those cities have actually been unearthed by archaeologists. And so we've learned a few things. I mean, we know that Egypt is wealthy. We know how wealthy the Egyptians were, and we know that that wealth produced this fleet of ships that would just sail along the Nile. And so these cities, Pithom and Ramses, they were built along the edges of the Nile at strategic locations. So as the ships were coming in with all of their goods that were flowing in and out of Egypt, I mean, well, these were basically treasury cities where you could store your, your valuables and things like this. So these were very wealthy cities. And we also know from scripture right here that the Hebrews built it. We also know this from archaeology. The archaeology backs this up. Uh, there was a pillar, an, an obelisk that was discovered with this mural. And it shows uh, two men whipping other men into submission. And, and these other men, they're bowing to the ground as they're making these bricks in the inscription below this mural, it read in Egyptian hieroglyphics, work without fainting. I mean, this is how brutal, this, this is how just ruthless these, these Egyptians were treating the Hebrews at this time. And this brutal work, it was meant to discourage the Hebrew people, but it wasn't working very well. I mean, Pharaoh had hoped that the Hebrews would look at the kind of treatment that they were enduring and they would say to themselves, this is awful. We don't want to live through this. Why would we ever have kids? They would have to grow up and, and live under this kind of brutal oppression. Let's just stop having babies. But something incredible happens. As brutal as the Egyptians are, I mean, the more the Egyptians beat them, the more they forced them into these labor camps, the more they, they took them away from their friends and their families, the more they ran them ragged making bricks, the harder they tried, the more they did, 
the more this resilient tribe multiplied. And so this amazing thing happens. The Egyptians are now living in dread of the sons of Israel. Did you catch that? It says they're living in dread of the sons of Israel. They're now called the sons of Israel. And when it says that, it's not referring to Jacob's boys anymore. It's now referring to this Hebrew nation. And this living in dread... Well, this has in its, in its meaning this idea that they are sick to their stomachs. I mean, this is making them sick. There's this pit. They're looking at it. These Hebrews are advancing. I mean, this is, this is not good. The Egyptians can't sleep at night. It's keeping them up. They got a pit in their stomachs. They're, they're feeling sick as they see this band of Hebrew aliens multiplying. It just nauseates them. And so... They're believing that any day now, these Hebrews could just kind of turn against them and retaliate and try to take over and attack from within to stage this kind of coup. Well, Pharaoh's first plan to discourage the Hebrews so that they would say, hey, we don't want to have any more babies. This is, this is too brutal. We don't want any child being born into this kind of oppression, into this kind of slavery. Well, that doesn't work. The Hebrews are not discouraged. They keep having babies. In fact, it's the Egyptians who are becoming more discouraged. They're the ones living in dread, sick to their stomachs, nauseated by what's taking place. And so then Pharaoh turns to phase two. And phase two is much more sick, much more devious than phase one even. Pharaoh he summons two of the Hebrew midwives, probably the leaders of the midwives. At that time, there were probably about 30 or 40 Hebrew midwives based on the population size and the uh, likely birth rate at that time. And so the, the women that he summons, their names are Sifra and Pua. And their names mean beauty and splendor. Isn't that wonderful? Beauty and splendor. So he has them come. And midwives at that time, there were young women who had never been married. Okay, so you can imagine the scene, can't you? I mean, here's the Pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world. And he summons these two young women to his palace. I mean, the most glorious palace. And he summons them there. And... You can just imagine if it was you, being young and impressionable, and, and here's the most powerful man in the world, and he summons you to his grand palace. And you know, hey, this is the man who's responsible for the brutal treatment of your father. He's the one who's responsible for just how hard things are for your brothers and how brutal things are for your uncles and your cousins. He's the one who's, who's responsible for all of this, and now he's calling you into his presence. So you can imagine as the, as the young women are walking into the palace that they're probably trembling, probably looking down. They, they don't want to make eye contact with this evil king. And then the most powerful man in the world, he most likely tries to impress them a little bit with just the grandeur of his palace and at the same time intimidate them with the power that he wields. And so he says to them, hey, your king gives you this command. As you're out there and, and the Hebrew women are giving birth, I want you to look and I want you to see. And if it is a boy who's being born, then right there when the child is still, the baby is still right on the birth stool, you just put your hand over, over their mouth and over their nostrils for a few minutes. And then you can tell the Hebrew women that, hey, your child was stillborn. I mean, you see just how sick, how ugly, how heinous 
this command is. And he tells them, you know, you do this and you'll do well in my kingdom. This is the command from your king. I mean, can you imagine hearing those words? Can you imagine having that command given to you in the palace of the most powerful man in the world at the time? Oh, it must have been terrifying. But something incredible happens. The Bible says that these women, these young women, feared God. They didn't fear Pharaoh. Their fear was in God. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so the way the construction of this verse uh, works, it's, it's almost like the midwives go and they gather all the other midwives. and They say, okay, here's the deal. If a Hebrew boy is being born, then you do everything you possibly can to make sure that that boy lives. I mean, it's like they're redoubling their efforts to make sure that the Hebrew boys are going to be okay. I mean, this is how serious uh, of a kind of retaliation that these women are taking against what Pharaoh has said. And at some point, word gets back to Pharaoh that, hey, the mortality rate of Hebrew boys is not dropping. In fact, they're improving. There's more Hebrew boys being born. This, your order is not being carried out. And so the Pharaoh, he calls the midwives in again, and he interrogates them once more. And he says, why have you let the Hebrew boys live? And the young women say, well... The Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. I'm telling you, these Hebrew women are like BMWs. I mean, Burley Mountain women, before we can even get there, they're, they're already having the baby. We, we, we can't even get there fast enough. Now, were these midwives telling the truth? <laughs> no, I mean, it's highly unlikely that like every Hebrew woman is given birth before the midwives show up. That'd be a complete reversal, of course. No, that's not what's happening. No, they're, they're telling a lie that they're covering up because they know how brutal this command is. And so we read this and sometimes we struggle and we wrestle and we say, well, I mean, they're, they're lying. And how is God going to honor that? Well, it's not necessarily that God honors the lie, but God does honor the women. And it says that because they feared God, he honors their fear of him. And because they have this holy, reverent fear of God, it says that, they, that God allowed their families to grow strong, that he increased their number. He gave them families. God honored the faith of these women. I mean, does that mean that, hey, we can lie and it's all right? No, no, no. But that's not the point of this passage. What the point of the passage is, is that sometimes uh, submission to government has its limits. That, that sometimes that the submission to the civil authority has limits. It's not saying that they're, you know, it's okay to lie or anything like that. That's, that's not the point. The point is that sometimes you got to look and you have to understand there is a higher authority here. And the women understood and obeyed the higher authority, a higher authority even than Pharaoh, even than the most powerful man at the world at that time. And because they did that, because they honored God's law above Pharaoh's law, God honored them. See, the Hebrew women, they look, these midwives, they look and they know, you know what? This command is wrong. 
that every child, every person is created in the image of God and therefore has intrinsic worth, intrinsic value. And to snuff out just this newborn baby's life, this is wrong. This violates the law of God. And I can have nothing to do with anything that violates the law of God. These Hebrew women, midwives, they take a stand for life because God is the giver of life. And so God honors them for that. Well, Pharaoh's plan of discouragement through just oppression and hard work, well, that didn't work. The second part of Pharaoh's plan, just through deceit by using these Hebrew midwives to have the baby boys killed, well, that doesn't work either. And so Pharaoh turns to this third phase of his plan to try to see his extermination agenda carried out. And somehow this third phase, it's even more horrific, it's even more heinous, it's even more sick than the previous two. He commands that every Hebrew boy be thrown into the Nile River. I mean, this is ugly. This is just awful. But are you catching how determined Pharaoh is to destroy these people? And why is that? Why? Because he's afraid. And we'll see this over and over again in the scriptures. You'll also see it over and over again in the course of human history. That when powerful people are afraid oftentimes they'll turn to brutality. I mean, think about it in the scriptures. You see King Saul and he's terrified that David's going to seize his throne. And so what does he do? I mean, he chases after David. He wants to kill him. And then there's David himself. And David, he has this adultery with Bathsheba. And then what does he do to Uriah? Well, he's afraid Uriah is going to find out. So he has Uriah killed. I mean, you see it over and over and over again. You see it in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. You see it in Herod. You see it with the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see it with Nero. You see it over and over and over again that when powerful people are afraid, Oftentimes they'll turn to brutality and that's what's happening here. And this brutal command, I mean, it has some religious undertones that can be easy for us to miss. The highest Egyptian God at that time was the Nile God. And Pharaoh knew that this kind of an edict, that it really was so horrific that even the Egyptians would kind of revolt against it and there could be some kind of mutiny. And so he's basically convincing the Egyptians that by throwing the Hebrew baby boys to the Nile God that perhaps the Nile God will allow them to live in the afterlife. See, we have this archaeological evidence uh, of this practice as well. Uh, One of the most gruesome examples of this is the Temple of Thebes. And this temple, it was built along the Nile River. And the, the Nile at that time was just infested with crocodiles. And they called the crocodiles the servants of the Nile. And so this temple that has been unearthed, it had steps that went down to just the the bank of the Nile and the priests would go down those steps and they would actually hurl the baby boys into the Nile River to the servants of the Nile. And it's as if Pharaoh is kind of saying, hey, we have these Hebrew aliens here who they do not worship our gods. Let's just offer their boys as, as an appeasement to the Nile God and perhaps he will be satisfied and he will allow these boys to live in the next life. And so this is a brutal practice. I mean, this is so vile. This is so ugly. I mean, if this evil king cannot suffocate the babies, then he's going to sink them in the river. 
I mean, this, this is how bad, this is how terrifying these times are. And this brutal practice, it would last for eight long years. I mean, can you imagine, of all the things that Israel has been through in, in her history, this is one of the most terrifying times, one of the most brutal times in a history of a people who's been through a lot of brutal times. But understand this, hard times do not erase God's promises. Hard times don't erase God's promises. Yeah, the Hebrews were, were suffering. And they were suffering heavy oppression and slavery. They're suffering the loss of their baby boys, this murderous king. I mean, these were some of the darkest of times. But all that abuse strapped to the back of the Hebrews, all of those boys being sunk in the Nile, it would not negate the promises that God had made. It was a promise that God first made Abraham. Maybe you remember back in, Abra back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. God says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." So this was the promise that God had made to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. It was a promise that God would then reaffirm to Abraham's grand, grandson, Jacob. And, it, and these people, this promise that's been made, God would not erase that promise. No matter how bad things were, the trials and the pain of the Hebrews, it would be long, it would be brutal, it would be hard, but it would not last forever. Because God's program keeps moving and his promises, they are fulfilled no matter how, light, how hard life is. And so we can read a passage like this and we can see how brutal it is and just the treatment that the Hebrews are, are, are suffering. And we see the ugliness of slavery and the evil of infanticide. And we think, God, why, why would you not step up? I mean, why would you allow this to happen? Why do you see seem so absent? I mean, slavery is evil and babies die and this is all too much. This is evil that you don't even want to kind of speak of, an unspeakable kind of awful. But be reminded of this. God sees our suffering. You know, no matter what you're going through, and I'm sure it's nothing compared to what the Hebrews went through, but it's still hard, right? I mean, we still have our sufferings and our trials that are difficult and they are painful and they are hard. God sees and he knows. I mean, he would say later in chapter 3, in Exodus chapter 3, that I have seen the afflictions of my people. I know their sufferings. See, our God is a God who sees, a God who knows. He, nothing is hidden from our God's omniscient, caring eyes. He sees, he knows. But what's more than even that is he's done something about it. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to endure all kinds of brutal treatment. I mean, to have his name slandered, to be mocked, to be beaten. And to be crucified on a cross in just the most horrendous, agonizing kind of way. And to take nothing to numb the pain. He would experience the full pain of all of it. And we see this and we read about it. And we say, God, why would you not step in? But we know that in order for God to rebuild what humanity had broken. In order for this relationship between God and man to be reestablished. 
that this was what had to be done. God had to take our sin. He had to bear the full brunt of the sin of all of humanity, our sin, the sin of the Hebrews, the sin of the Egyptians. He had to bear all of that. And then there's this other thing that we're reminded of, that when God seems absent, he's actually most gloriously present. That when God seemed absent on the cross, oh, he was most gloriously present. When God seemed absent in Egypt, he was most gloriously present. And so we hold on to our faith and we remain true to our God, just like those Hebrew midwives. No matter how heavy the test, no matter how horrific the, the threat, we know that when God seems absent, he's most gloriously present. And so... Are you beginning to kind of see the type of world into which Moses would be born? I mean, it's a brutal world for the Hebrews. It's a hard world. It's an ugly world. It's a sick world. And this is the world that Moses would be, would be born into. A, a murderous, vicious Pharaoh hatching all kinds of plots. And God's people quietly resisting as best they can. How quickly things had moved from prosperity in Egypt to now evil in Egypt. And we want God to step in right away and just to make things different right away. Remove the evil. But we see that oftentimes God allows his people to ripen on the vine, to mature slowly so that this deep relationship can be forged. So that a burden can be developed. Because hope begins with a burden. But soon the time would come when a baby would be born. Like the baby who would be born in a manger, Moses would be born to deliver Israel. This great consummation of the promise that God had made to Abraham was about to take place. And by God's design, he had made people like Sifra and Pua to hold tight to God's promises, even through the most difficult, the most painful of times. And he's doing the same thing today. He's, he's creating a people who will hold tight and cling to his goodness and to his truth, even through the most difficult times, because God continues to deliver people. He continues to forge relationships through the fire. And that's why he kind of allows us to go through some stuff, to ripen on the vine, to mature slowly. Because when you've been through stuff, when you've experienced hard things together, well, a relationship is born, a relationship that has all kind of flavor and all kind of taste and all kind of vitality. See, when, when you go through stuff, you also develop a burden and hope begins with a burden. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not waste the sufferings of your people, that you are a good God who sees, who knows, who cares. And what's more, you've done something about it. And God, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.